and welcome to this bonus episode of the EMG Health Podcast. My name is Dr. Julianne Locke and today's podcast will explore the latest advancements in gene therapy for the treatment of haemophilia. This podcast follows on from the EHAD Virtual Congress in 2022 and will look at what the future of gene therapy could mean for both clinicians and patients. Joining me today, I have two great guests, Dr. Stephen Pipe and Lawrence Woolard. Dr. Stephen Pipe has several roles at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, including the Lawrence A. Boxer Research Professor of Pediatrics and Professor of Pathology. He is the Medical Director of the Pediatric Haemophilia and Coagulation Disorders Programme, and his research focuses on the molecular mechanisms of Haemophilia A. He has published over 140 papers and in recent years has been involved in clinical trials for novel treatments, including gene therapy. Lawrence Willard is from Essex in the UK. He lives with severe haemophilia A and is a passionate advocate for patients. Lawrence focuses on raising awareness of haemophilia and providing peer support to young haemophiliacs with information on managing their condition and empowering patients with various rare diseases to self-advocate with the aim of improving treatment and outcomes. He has written extensively on improving patient consent and developing more evidence-backed joint decision-making between clinicians and patients. This podcast has been funded by a Pfizer educational grant in which the position and discussions might not represent the position of Pfizer. Lawrence and Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Very pleased to be here. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you. Dr. Pipe, let's start off at the beginning. For a long time, well over 30 years, we've been hearing that gene therapy will be the silver bullet for many rare disorders. However, we're still only seeing a handful of gene therapies approved for use and none at the moment for haemophilia A or B. Are we just living in blind hope? Well, hope is alive, Julie. Um, I, I'm very excited about where the, the platform has progressed to this point. Um, you're right. Uh, we've been talking about gene therapy for hemophilia for close to 30 years. Um, and, and it's because of uh, a clear understanding of the pathology of, of hemophilia. Um, both hemophilia A and B, um, these individuals are just missing uh, a single protein in their blood clotting and uh, related to their, their whatever gene mutation they have. And what we've been doing treatment-wise for uh, really multiple decades is just replace that protein, so-called factor replacement therapy. And uh, that has had uh, uh, great advances in improving the outcomes for patients, but it's come with its own limitations. Uh, these proteins, these clotting factor proteins have to be given intravenously. Uh, they have a limited half-life uh, in the plasma. Uh, so repeated frequent infusions has been um, the life for patients with hemophilia for many, many decades. Um, the other challenge is uh, has been the immune system. Uh, the immune system uh, often sees these proteins as being foreign proteins because their own body doesn't make them. And so uh, we've been dealing with inhibitors uh, for a long time with unique challenges and uh, uh, really adverse outcomes for patients who've been affected by inhibitors. Um, we've had some, you know, many recent innovations that have, I think, uh, started to improve things for patients. Uh, the extended half-life uh, clotting factors have uh, been a, a real improvement uh, because it's uh, helped patients be able to reduce the burden somewhat, but they've still been tied to, you know, adherence to a regular prophylactic regimen, um, uh, still uh, intravenous uh, obligation for administration. The latest innovation was a uh, the first of its kind of a non-factor replacement therapy. This is a drug called emicizumab. This is really the first paradigm shift uh, for hemophilia, but conceptually, it's still accomplishing the same thing. It's, it's acting as a substitute for factor eight in the bloodstream. It has some advantages because it has a very long half-life. It can be given uh, subcutaneously. Um, but it still only achieves a subnormal uh, correction of the blood clotting system. So the vision of gene therapy is to take the learnings we've had from all these many decades and, and say, well, if we can't uh, provide a replacement protein on a regular basis and get nice, even, steady state levels in the blood plasma, what if we replace the actual gene? Um, what if we were able to deliver a good copy of the factor eight or the factor nine gene fully functional and then allow the patient's own organs, bloodstream uh, to uh, accumulate the, the factor eight or the factor nine and achieve those steady state levels? We know that if 
you uh, have uh, good corrective levels in the plasma, patients don't bleed anymore. So the, the trick then has been, how do we deliver a genetic material like that um, into the body and what are the organs that we should target it to. And so that's what we've been working on uh, for these last 30 years. We, we had sort of fits and starts of different strategies. We started off giving it into the muscle actually of patients. And then we eventually determined that uh, targeting the liver made the most sense. You know, factor nine is already made in the liver um, and factor eight uh, can be uh, made in the liver. And so that ended up being the target organ. Uh, and then it was a matter of uh, determining what's the delivery vehicle, what's going to be able to deliver it to the liver, get it in there in sufficient quantities, and uh, hopefully lead to enduring production of factor. And we went through looking at a number of different um, viral vectors, actually. And why, why would you choose a virus? Well, viruses by nature get into cells, and that's what we're trying to do here. And so what we do is we uh, re-engineer these viruses into just empty uh, vectors, and we package them with the what we call the transgene. This is, the, this is what's going to be delivered to the patients. And uh, we put some elements, genetic elements in there so that uh, if it gets into the cell, only the target tissue is actually going to express the gene. And so in this case, since we're targeting the liver, we put these liver-specific um, genetic elements in there so that if the gene gets into the liver cell, it will, it will use the natural machinery of the cell to make factor eight and factor nine. So when we looked at the different uh, viral vector options, um, one thing we wanted to do is we wanted to balance the risk and the potential benefit or the efficacy of, of, the, of the platform. And we ended up settling on uh, a really interesting, uh, quite small viral vector called adeno-associated virus. Um, in the wild, these viruses cause no human pathology. We get exposed to them uh, in, in, in our environment, uh, but they don't cause any known disease. So that's a good starting place, right? And then we can, we found out we could re-engineer these viral vectors. So we just use the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the outer box of the virus that, that we call the capsid. And we fill it with uh, the transgene that includes factor eight or factor nine. And uh, you can give these viral particles through a single infusion, goes in over about one to three hours. Those viral particles um, get specific targeting to the liver they get taken up into the liver cell, they unpackage, and uh, they deliver the gene into the nucleus of the cell. And the beauty of the uh, AAV vector delivery system is that the DNA primarily stays outside of your own genes, your, your chromosomes. And uh, it forms these circular um, uh, DNA elements that we call episomes. And uh, the reason that's a good strategy is uh, we really um, want to avoid disturbing sort of the normal genome of the cells. And uh, those episomes can persist in those cells and use the natural machinery of the cell to make factor eight or factor nine. And so after this single treatment event, what we see is that a few weeks after uh, delivery, your factor levels start to accumulate up into your plasma and you reach a steady state level that we can measure. So now we have this really conceptually straightforward procedure, single treatment event, wait a few weeks, measure the levels in the plasma with the traditional assays we're, we're used to using. We can determine if the factor levels at a sufficient level to take over uh, blood clotting and patients no longer have to be on prophylaxis. So uh, that's the idea. How close are we to the reality? Well, maybe that's what we can talk about a little bit further. Yeah, so I think you've touched on a lot of the importance there. Where you've identified a viral vector that will do the job. You've identified the theoretical basis for why it would work. So what are we starting to see in terms of promise from clinical trials? What are the standout points to date? Yeah, so I think it's always helpful to go back and see how much information do we have before we actually give a product like this to a patient. 
So of course, the, or the early uh, strategies were testing this out in animal models, small animal models like, uh, like mice, because we have um, a murine models of, of hemophilia and mice. And then actually beautifully, we've had some uh, naturally occurring dogs, dog colonies, uh, where they have uh, had naturally occurring hemophilia A and B. And those uh, dog colonies have been bred out for these types of uh, studies. And we've learned a lot from these studies. Um, we've learned that, yes, you can target the liver. Um, it does exactly the concept that I, I walked you through. Um, uh, these dogs, once they achieve uh, levels in their plasma, they, they no longer uh, bleed for the most part. And the most important information that came from these trials is the dogs who got these treatments, even at a fairly young age, continue to express from those delivered genes all the way through their lifespan. And these dogs now have lived to a ripe old age uh, um, beyond, uh, you know, uh, uh, being able to continue in the colonies. And uh, they have, um, you know, been put down. And then they've given us an opportunity then to look at their tissues in the liver so that we could really understand what's going on. And I've taken a lot of reassurance from those uh, dog studies that we didn't see... Um, uh, we, we did see that the gene did get delivered. It persisted in the tissues. And uh, only rarely do these genetic elements end up integrating into the DNA of the cells. And even when it did so, it did so in regions that don't seem to be associated with any pathology for the dogs. And so we never saw any uh, evidence that this caused um, uh, tumor genesis, um, did, did not induce cancers in, in the dogs or any other uh, pathology that could be observed. So from those preclinical models, you then move to what are called early phase one, phase two studies. And what they're doing is you're trying to scale up from the studies you did in the animals find the right dose in a patient, and then see, did the product deliver? Can we give it safely? Does the dose we chose achieve the outcome that we're doing? And are we really achieving the benefit to the patient um, with uh, the best risk profile comparison? And uh, there have been a number of phase one, two trials that have already completed, um, and uh, several have informed enough that we are seeing similar findings as we observed in the dogs. This gets into uh, the cells. It seems to stay there. Uh, the vast majority of the DNA stays episomal. Um, patients are able to achieve factor levels in their plasma that can prevent bleeding. And that gave enough impetus to move some of these platforms onto what are called the, the big phase three pivotal trials. So now you're moving from a trial of maybe a handful of patients, um, you know, 12, 13 patients over a multiple doses in a phase one, two trial. And now you're going to be doing a trial of, you know, 60 to maybe 120 plus patients. And now you get a much better picture of when you apply this product to a broad swath of the population with everyone's sort of inter-individual inter variations, what are the outcomes you achieve? And uh, the phase three trials are, uh, are, are well along. We have uh, one for factor eight that is reported out two years uh, after the gene therapy delivery. And we have uh, one of the trials for factor nine uh, that is reported out beyond uh, 18 months. And I would say for the most part, what we're seeing is uh, uh, gene therapy is um, showing promise. Um, it, it's allowing patients to be relieved from prophylaxis. They're no longer uh, consuming the, the factor products like they used to. And uh, across a broad range of expression levels in the plasma, patients have been uh, essentially uh, bleed free for the most part. Um, so there's a lot to learn. Um, maybe we can talk a little bit later about some of the limitations that I see with this platform of therapy. But I, I think what, what I can say from the trials to date is they have definitely shown promise. If these trials lead to licensed treatment, will this treatment be suitable for all haemophiliacs? And I suppose, importantly, will it be accessible to people? Yeah, these are, these are great issues. Um, well, let's go back to some of the concepts we've already talked about. Um, you know, this is a completely new uh, platform of therapy. 
Um, so you always want to test these things out in adult patients first before you go into a vulnerable population, you know, involving a pediatric age group. So all of the men who've been treated so far have been age 18 or older. Um, second concept is we decided to target the liver, right? That seemed to uh, be the, the best choice. Well, uh, if you're going to do that, you want to be targeting a healthy liver to get the best outcome for patients. Well, one of the sad uh, legacies of hemophilia is uh, the significant pathology that they've had to endure related to um, uh, bloodborne uh, contaminants uh, back in the uh, early 80s. Um, this contributed to uh, uh, many patients um, uh, acquiring HIV, hepatitis B and C. And importantly, uh, hepatitis C has uh, led to a significant amount of liver pathology in what would otherwise be the uh, adult population that would be eligible for gene therapy. So unfortunately, we, we have had to exclude patients who, if they haven't ever had their hepatitis C eradicated yet, they would not be eligible for these treatments. And if they had too far advanced pathology related to hepatitis C, sort of the fibrosis and the cirrhosis that can ensue in some patients, they also are not eligible for this uh, kind of treatment. Um, third concept is, remember I told you that these uh, AAV viruses occur naturally and we get exposed to them. So it turns out we often accumulate antibody responses to naturally occurring AAVs, probably from early childhood. And uh, unfortunately, if these antibodies cross-react with these AAV vectors, because they look similar enough to the natural viruses, um, sometimes these antibodies will actually neutralize the vector as it's being delivered to the patient, and it will block it from the uptake into the liver. And this would mean that uh, really the, the treatment probably would not work for them. So we saw this early on in uh, developing these treatments. And so for the vast majority of the trials, actually, we do a test before they get the treatment to test for eligibility. And unfortunately, if they have neutralizing antibodies beyond a certain titer, they have been excluded from the clinical trials. Now, how often do these occur? Unfortunately, it's quite common. Um, I would say anywhere from 25 to maybe as high as 50% of patients who've been screened in these trials, they have screened out solely because they had neutralizing antibodies. So that's uh, unfortunately limited the population who could get that. The, the last thing uh, I think is also really important. Remember I told you that these uh, gene elements are being delivered to the, um, the liver, the liver cell, the hepatocyte. Well, because the DNA primarily stays outside the genes of the cell, the, the chromosomes, if the cell divides, these episomal genetic elements don't get passed on to the daughter cells. And so what's likely to happen over time with a growing liver that's dividing um, that uh, you would lose the transgene over time? And so because of that, we really can't see this platform of therapy, this AAV-mediated liver-directed therapy, really being applicable to a pediatric population. Um, I think there's some hope that uh, we, we think the liver is mostly developed by maybe uh, early adolescence. So think you know, age 11, 12 years. And so maybe uh, with an approved therapy, we might see some trials going down into the uh, adolescent age group, but we really can't see this platform of therapy being applied to the pediatric population. Uh, when I talk to patients about this, um, the, the parents often ask, well, what if they got it when they were a child and then could you give them another dose later if, if it wore off, if you like? Well, unfortunately there, that's where our immune system gets us again. Um, the immune system, after seeing these vectors, mounts such a vigorous response to the AAV, and it would probably be a durable effect, and it would pretty much preclude being able to get another AAV treatment in the future. Lawrence, haemophiliacs and their families have been spectacularly let down in history. I suppose I'm thinking particularly of the blood scandals of the 80s and 90s. Does this still linger heavy in the minds of haemophiliacs when new treatments come along? And does it increase reluctance to take part in clinical trials? 
So, so it's a really important question. I think as the um, old adage goes, um, you know, you have to know the past to understand the present, right? And um, the humanitarian catastrophe of the contaminated blood scandal, you know, let's call it what it is, um, has had a generational impact on families affected by haemophilia, including my own. So we sadly lost our granddad in 1987 as a consequence of contracting HIV from plasma-derived clotting factor concentrates, and as well as my grandmother in 2003, who was unintentionally infected through Grandad. Um, in the UK, we actually have an ongoing public inquiry um, to understand what happened. Arguably 40 years too late, but uh, many members and activists of the infected and affected community have campaigned tirelessly for truth and justice for many years. Interestingly, the oral documented evidence have pulled into sharp focus the culturally paternalistic, hierarchical and dominant clinical policies and practices of the time where decisions were made or not made about treatment with, in many cases, total disregard to patient consent. This resulted in an approach to risk communication with patients about viral transmission that was based on reassurance rather than one which engaged in a full and transparent discussion of patients' concerns or a consideration of alternative treatment options. So contaminated blood makes for a precautionary principle with regard to treatment decision-making, particularly where uncertainties persist. What's unique about modality like gene therapy is that unlike traditional medicine or, or the current standard of care for haemophilia that can be altered or stopped, with current technology, gene therapy is a one-off and, and non-reversible. They also have extremely complex characteristics that are not all yet clearly understood, which together present ethical challenges for both provider and patient. Hence, this places greater onus on, on investigators and, and physicians alike to strengthen the informed consent process, whether in a research or, or a clinical setting. And the key word there is process. You know, we're talking about open dialogue and assessment carried out over months, not just a one-time event, so that people living with haemophilia are fully cognizant of the consent they give or deny. And consent also extends to longitudinal data collection, which is a necessity with gene therapy. So the World Federation of Haemophilia, who are the international umbrella organisation for people living with inherited bleeding disorders, They've created a global gene therapy registry um, to answer questions regarding safety and efficacy over the lifespan of treated patients. While the intensity of patient monitoring may reduce outside of, of trials, regular tests will still be essential. Um, and because of the sensitive nature of data being collected, this will still necessitate a robust consent process and the possibility to re-consent down the line, you know, when there's uncertainty about the registry's future purpose. I think another aspect to consider, um, specifically related to clinical trials, is how information is presented. And, and sometimes roles can be blurred, whereby the physician is also the researcher and or lead investigator. So we know that Patient trust in their physicians is one of the major influencing factors for consenting to undergo certain procedures. Where physician investigators are themselves invested in the ongoing success of the research, this can call into question their objectivity of recruitment and whether they are seeing the individual in front of them as their patient or a research subject. It's complex and again, I think reinforces the need for a clearer, well-defined and robust consenting process. And I suppose that's quite important as we move on to the next discussion point is that you mentioned this issue of consent and it really is something you're very passionate about, I can tell, and I know you've published in the area as well. So what should clinicians and patients be considering to improve not only how consent is obtained, but also how patients give it? Again, it's a really important question. So firstly, from a, from a patient's perspective, underlying the success of a meaningful informed consent process is their ability to comprehend and engage in um, not only their own health needs, but also the fundamental science and application of gene therapy. So this requires sufficient treatment knowledge, 
along with effective skills in medical, behavioural, emotional and self-management. Now, you could argue that, that people living with haemophilia have been developing this skill set since childhood and adolescence. But unlike those who develop a chronic condition in adulthood, and I think of conditions like multiple sclerosis, for instance, you know, that's normally um, diagnosed in early adulthood, who often identify the event as a biographical disruption, people living with a congenital condition like haemophilia are less likely to experience feelings of loss or changes as a result of its course. Therefore, they may consider their lives with haemophilia as quote-unquote burden-free and have some sense of normalcy, when really it's far from the quality of life experienced compared to their non-affected peers. So as such, you know, equity of access to age and developmentally appropriate therapeutic education is absolutely fundamental, whether through the clinic, digital means, and or the local patient advocacy group. As I've mentioned, a successful consent approach warrants such education engagement taking place over an extended period of time rather than as a, you know, as a one-off interaction, giving space for answering questions, addressing misconceptions and allowing participants a calling off period for further consent discussions. I think within this process should include the use of um, some form of validated assessment tools to screen and assess patients' general health literacy and treatment knowledge in order for researchers and physicians to tailor their communication to patients' informational needs. Um, and this is really to avoid assumptions being made about patients' comprehension and or relying on gut feelings based on past interpersonal exchanges, while also ensuring relevant information is being disclosed equitably. There's an argument for making consent materials and documentation for clinical trials more fit for purpose. And, and this is considering the reality that patients who drop out of trials early are twice as likely to say that the consent form was difficult to understand and over three quarters of trial participants who sign the consent form within 24 hours of first receiving it, do so having read only certain sections in detail. So finding more creative and practical approaches through multimedia and interactive formats can have numerous benefits for presenting information in more user-friendly ways. And we could probably cover this in a whole podcast episode alone. I think two other aspects that I'd really like to mention is, is one, the idea has been suggested of mandating an independent patient expert with technical knowledge and ethical application of gene therapy to be co-opted as a liaison between prospective trial participants and the research team in order to ensure a clear and unbiased overview of proceedings. And I personally would really like to see a, com a commitment from regulators to build on this. And secondly, I think patient advocacy groups in haemophilia have a moral responsibility to provide an engagement pathway to nurture and support people living with haemophilia each milestone in their gene therapy decision-making journey, including a peer mentoring programme to connect prospective trial participants or clinical patients with those who have already received gene therapy, particularly in respect of practicalities of treatment administration and what to anticipate during follow-up. It's, it's very interesting to hear that perspective, Lawrence. And so, Stephen, from a clinician's point of view, how does the past influence the present in terms of how you approach or encourage others to approach patients, many of whom may have lost family members, like Lawrence, to historical treatment, to take part in new clinical trials and to try new treatments? What are your thoughts about maybe changes that need to be thought about in terms of consent? Yeah, Lawrence has raised um, many important points here. And I, I, I like to hone in on the shared decision-making model. I think that that really has turned out to be a critical aspect of how we interact with patients and families over a, a, a longitudinal uh, uh, perspective. Um, it, it's why I feel so strongly that major platform shifts of treatment like this have to be conducted within the integrated comprehensive care model that we have with the hemophilia treatment centers because we've had those relationships with those patients since 
oftentimes since they were born. Um, Lawrence mentioned sort of multi-generational uh, engagement with the hemophilia treatment centers. This is really important. Um, I think it's already uh, guided how we've approached some of the novel therapeutics that we've embraced in recent years as we move from plasma-derived to recombinant therapies, as we moved from the traditional recombinants to the bioengineered molecules, um, and even as we've embraced really uh, out-of-the-box uh, type treatments like emicizumab, um, uh, where, we, again, that shared decision-making really was critical in getting patients to embrace what was really a very different approach to treating their hemophilia. Um, gene therapy will be the same. Um, uh, I, I believe that um, goal setting with patients is really uh, important. Understanding uh, what it is that they want to achieve uh, with their life, both short-term and long-term goals. I think it's understanding uh, uh, clearly how to present risk and benefit as it relates to any therapy. And I think one important thing, and, and maybe Lawrence can appreciate this as well. Um, you mentioned something, Lawrence, about you know in a congenital condition, you may not have the same perspective of what might be lost related to your condition or your current therapeutic. I, I totally see that in hemophilia. And what that means is we, we call something like factor replacement therapy standard of care, you know, prophylaxis, that's the standard of care. Well, what do we really mean by that? Do we really mean that that's the best care? Is that achieving the best outcome that that patient can possibly achieve? I don't actually think that that's true. It just means that's the current standard of outcome and risk and benefit that the community has embraced broadly. But when we think about fact replacement therapy, I can tell you that despite my best efforts as a clinic, as a pediatric treater, looking after babies through early childhood and adolescence, what we're seeing in young adults is they are still accumulating pathology in their joints. Um, uh, we see changes on the MRIs, the x-rays. We see some of the joint debility. And unfortunately, we're seeing a trajectory that means when we're seeing those changes in early adulthood, those are going to continue to worsen over subsequent decades. So it tells me that we have an obligation to make sure our patients and families understand that the current standard of care already has limitations. It's got some risks. We talked about inhibitors, uh, development of factor replacement proteins. Um, it, there's financial uh, risk related to these treatments, and uh, there are risks of not uh, um, definitively taking care of the bleeding phenotype over the lifespan. So on that backdrop, I now have an opportunity to present to a patient and say, you know, there might be something better. Now to get to that better, there's going to be uncertainties. There's going to be things that we won't know today. We might not know for decades, but this is the potential outcome for you. Um, how much of a difference do you think this could make in your life if you were able to achieve XYZ? And these are the conversations that we have, whether it's for a clinical trial for gene therapy or ultimately the kind of conversations I'll be having related to talking about a commercial therapy. Um, I recognize the, the limitations that we see with this new platform of treatment, um, and uh, I need to be able to communicate that readily. But I, what I hear from patients who've gone through gene therapy is, are things like, wow, I never thought I would feel like this. Uh, I don't have to think about my hemophilia anymore. Um, uh, the choices that patients are making, Choices related to education, choices relating to vocation, the types of jobs they take, the places they choose to live, the family units that are being formed, all of those used to be influenced by their hemophilia and their treatment. And now we've liberated them from the ties to the adherence to their uh, prophylactic regimen, and uh, we've brought spontaneity back to their life. And so this is a transformative therapy. What, what my obligation and what the whole community's obligation is, if we're gonna, if we think this transformative treatment is appropriate for today in 2022 or 2023, let's make sure we've got the right guardrails in place. Um, Lawrence mentioned the, the World Federation um, 
uh, gene therapy registry. Well, why do we need a registry? Because we have an obligation to report out to the community over the long run what were the risks and benefits of this transformative treatment. And I, I, I really have high aspirations that what we're going to be able to communicate 10, 20 years from now is this made important differences in people's lives. I think something that you've mentioned there a lot is that patients will be moving away to that traditional approach of, you know, having to go and get access to their clotting factors and be freer from having to think about their treatments. So how is it going to change the way that we interact with our patients? Will they need to go to specialist centres as much? Will it be more community-based care, do you think? Well, there's a number of aspects of the monitoring after this single treatment event that we haven't totally explored yet. Um, uh, one important thing is uh, what I like to say about gene therapy. It's um, yes, it's one and done, but it's not get and forget. And what I mean by that is uh, there's important monitoring uh, after the gene therapy infusion that is critical to achieving a good outcome from this therapy. Um, you know, we talked about how the immune system has, uh, you know, been a challenge for hemophilia therapeutics for a long time. That's particularly true in uh, gene therapy. Uh, what we've observed across all the clinical trials is there's a proportion of patients who uh, develop uh, what we think is a form of liver toxicity. It's transient. It's it's subclinical um, for the vast majority of patients. It's just picked up on the laboratory assays. But we think what this transient liver toxicity is representing is a activation of the immune system probably in response to the uh, the vector itself, whether it's the protein components on the vector or the DNA elements. We, we don't totally understand that yet. Uh, but what we risk if we see this liver toxicity is if it's not um, managed properly, patients could actually lose the transgene expression. And so they would go through this hopefully transformative treatment and then a few weeks to months later, they would lose all the expression. And that, that is very disappointing and, uh, when, when that happens. So how we manage this, we, we track patients very closely after gene therapy treatment. It requires going to a you know, in a clinical trial, coming back to the treatment center, maybe once or twice a week to get blood draws. And then if we see uh, a shift in those uh, liver enzymes off the baseline, we um, treat them with a, a course of immunomodulation. So um, these are immunosuppressive agents, typically oral corticosteroids, uh, but some other agents ha have been used in different trials. These have their own side effects and, uh, and, and things that patients don't like, but um, it's, it's a limited course uh, within the, the early part of the, of, of the procedure. And once patients come out the other side, usually they have been left with some sort of steady state expression uh, going forward. But that means there's continued engagement after gene therapy. So I, I never present to a patient, okay, you're going to come and get this one and done treatment and then, you know, sayonara, we're not going to see you anymore. It doesn't work like that. Uh, this is a real commitment. In fact, for the, for the clinical trials, people have had to make changes in their jobs so that they knew that they could go and get those uh, visits at the, at the treatment center or um, uh, come in and get lab draws, et cetera. And so it's a real uh, commitment early on. Now, after they get through that phase, um, then, you know, we really are in a much more stable situation, but there are reasons why we're going to want to continue to be engaged with these patients over the long term. Um, you mentioned the obligation to report out to the community the transformative benefits of this therapy. We also want to be cognizant that there could be adverse events related to gene therapy that we have not anticipated. It, you know, the follow-up was too short in the early trials. Maybe the animal models don't, you know, manifest this kind of adverse event. And so that's going to be absolutely critical. So uh, what I want my patients to understand is you're going to go through this procedure, but you know what? We've had a lifelong engagement and that's not going to change. Maybe the intensity of that follow-up is going to be different. 
I, I'd love it if post-gene therapy, I only had to see them once a year um, just to check in on them. But uh, uh, I really want to emphasize that um, this is going to be a transformative treatment, but follow-up is really going to be a critical part. And we're going to want to continue that engagement at the HTC level. It's a, it's a great answer. It would be great if it's one and done, but yes, it is going to be a, a follow-up for a long time to come. I suppose, Lawrence, that brings me on to like, what patients are expecting. It's very easy to talk about clinical trials and the outcomes that we're seeing, but from a patient's perspective, what is it that patients really want? Yeah, so I, I certainly can't speak for all patients, but um, I, I refer to an article that I published five years ago in 2017 with the title, Nothing Less Than a Bleed-Free Life. Um, where I discuss the myriad of challenges facing young people in particular living with haemophilia and how we can ill afford any delay in intervening, nurturing and supporting them on their individual paths to making a mark on society. And I think this idea of turning the aspirational into reality has been beautifully modelled by Mark Skinner and colleagues, coinciding with the technological advances in treatment and the move towards a functional cure represented by gene therapy. But I come back to my earlier point, you know, it's through education that we can show people the implications of what they're taking for granted or being unaware of. This idea of promoting autonomy and enabling them to challenge the status quo of their care, whereby bleeding is no longer acceptable, you know, respecting the fact of what Dr. Piper's already shared around the the limitations of standard of care. But I think, unfortunately, too many of my peers are are unaware of what optimal care is and looks like. I think exacerbated by not having any other sources of validation like peer support and, and just agreeing maybe to decisions made for them by their clinical team rather than with them. And there has been some early research around patient perspectives and expectations of gene therapy, where participants have indicated things like factor level, uncertainty of long-term risks, impact on daily life, and stopping prophylaxis as key attributes in their decision-making. I actually think about my my two older brothers, um, who also live with severe haemophilia, and how different we are in terms of our our lifestyle, our, our physical activity, daily motivations and and life goals. Again, something Dr. Pipe referred to earlier. You know, these are all important considerations that should form part of individualized care and shared decision-making when given an evidence-informed treatment choice. Um, I think one aspect that is critical um, um, is and will be managing patient expectations around these first-generation gene therapies. And not just in terms of safety, durability and efficacy, but, you know, those living with pre-existing joint disease from repetitive bleeding like myself um, may still experience chronic pain and discomfort post-gene therapy. Um, And the same could be said for those psychologically impacted by their experience of living with the condition and past trauma, which may persist post-gene therapy. So, You know, arguably, people may still need access to specialised services with professionals that are experienced and can empathise with the idiosyncrasies that come with a rare condition like haemophilia, even though, um, again, like as Dr. Piper's mentioned, that they may define themselves as no longer living with haemophilia or being part of the community. It's quite interesting what you raised there about this idea of nothing less than a bleed-free life and that, you know, haemophiliacs going forward who may be with gene therapy are no longer bleeding. They they may or may not feel like they belong to part of the community. It may have a, a change in their identity there. Do you feel hope for your fellow haemophiliacs, their families their, and their relatives yet to be born? You know, plenty of haemophiliacs worry about what their nephews might experience or what the future holds. So what would it mean to no longer need constant treatment? Yeah, so, you know, I'll tie it back to my granddad. You know, he spent two thirds of his life without any effective treatment option and developed severe joint disease, only to, you know, obviously sadly succumb to transfused transmitted viral infections from treatment that was supposed to save him. Um, But today, you know, young children, you know, growing up with sufficient access to treatment can be afforded a completely different outlook on life, even compared to me and my brother's generations. Um, you know, through some of the treatment options that Dr. Piper's described, you know, enhanced clotting factors, 
and non-factor products that are available or in the pipeline. And I think we are witnessing a, a shift from a time of unpredictability and uncertainty to one of genuine optimism where individuals can participate in different sports and activities and choose areas of employment that, again, as Dr. Pipe um, um, shared, you know, that were otherwise out of reach. Um, I think for some adults, these early gene therapies could provide, you know, a really effective solution where there is, you know, significant clinical need and could remove the requirement for, for regular infusions or subcutaneous injections from, you know, what, for an unknown period of time, or, you know, at least five to 10 years, right? Um, but, you know, I would caveat that by reminding everyone that, you know, not, not all people living with haemophilia will be eligible. Um, plus, these do target um, uh, somatic cells, not germline. So haemophilia can still be passed on to, to subsequent generations. Right. Finally, to you both, what are your key messages on gene therapy? From your point of view, Dr. Pipe, as a clinician, what would you say to patients? And, and Lawrence, we'll come to you as to what you would say as a patient to clinician. Well, I, I see the potential benefits and I have a full recognition of the current limitations. So, you know, the benefits, this is a single treatment event. Amazing. Uh, we're seeing clinically relevant expression of factor eight and factor nine levels, uh, potentially to within the normal range, um, really achieving what we had really aspired to and what um, uh, uh, Lawrence has, has mentioned so far. Um, the durability, uh, well, you know, still evolving, but I, I can tell you uh, from the heme A trials, uh, at least five years of expression is still going. The heme B trials, we have patients who are expressing beyond 10 years. Um, I, I think this is an incredible achievement. Bleeding episodes reduced, reduced need for prophylactic treatment, uh, improvements of quality of life measures, all sort of the benchmarks of saying this really is a transformative treatment. But the limitations are still there. Um, uh, there are minor limitations, you know, transient infusion related effects. We can manage those. Um, uh, I mentioned the uh, immunosuppression. Um, uh, that's that's not a, a minor issue, but it's still manageable. And the majority of patients are going to get through that and they're going to end up on the other side of that without any need for uh, continuing with those uh extra therapeutics. But some of the other limitations are quite a bit more challenging. Um, the variability. Um, we, I, I would tell you that probably at least a tenfold range of outcomes, at least as far as factor levels are concerned. Um, that's that's a, not as much precision as I would like uh, for this kind of treatment. Um, there's a lack of predictability. I can't tell uh, a young man like uh, Lawrence what level he's going to achieve if I get, even though I'm giving the same dose to every one of these patients, um, I can't tell him where his level's going to end up. And so he may have aspirations of, you know, being up around 100% factor eight or factor nine levels. What he may end up with is a level of 8%. Well, is that still potentially transformative? I have seen that it can be. Um, but I, again, I wished I had more precision to offer patients about those kinds of outcomes. Um, the long-term durability, um, I think, is an unknown. It's part of the reason why we need to do this uh, tracking over the long term. There are some unquantifiable risks. Um, I, I take a lot of um, uh, guidance from the preclinical models and also the clinical trials to date, which have shown no... Uh, evidence of, uh, you know, any any adverse impact from integration events, particularly relating to tumor genesis. Um, we we know this platform was brought forward to the community to be a platform that would offer the best risk benefit ratio. Um, however. Uh, I can't promise uh, a patient that there's no risk for a serious adverse event uh, post-gene therapy. Um, so uh, th this is one of those things where um, you, you're going to look back on your current treatment. And I, I, I try to help patients understand there's not zero risk with the treatment you're currently on. Um, an adolescent male 
who's relying on prophylactic therapy with factor replacement, he's already embracing actually a known risk that he's going to continue to accumulate damage in his joints over the long term. And this will have implications for him uh, as he ages. And so I, I think we're still back to that shared decision model that we talked about. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful for the future with this platform of therapy, but we do want to be careful and we want patients to be fully informed about the risks and the benefits of this kind of a procedure. And so, Lawrence, I suppose from your point of view, what do you think it's important that clinicians know? Yes, yeah, so I think I've got about three three key messages, really. I think, firstly, safeguarding the, the rights and interests of people living with haemophilia should remain the absolute top priority. So, so clinicians you know, need to do everything in their power to ensure that patients have an all-round understanding of gene therapy and that they are fully aware of the decision and commitments that they are choosing to make or not. Uh, I think my second point, um, education, education, <laughs> education. Uh, people living with haemophilia uh, will need to achieve higher levels of competence, capacity and health literacy to truly engage in benefit risk discussions around gene therapy. And I think the treatment centre and the multidisciplinary care team are a gateway to holistic support and services, including education. So, you know, they do and, and can and will play an integral part in supporting with the upskilling and, and enabling individuals to make evidence-informed treatment choices. And, and lastly, good ethics requires transparent and consistent communication. 40 years on, you know, the, the contaminated blood scandal is a stark reminder of that paternalistic past that we've discussed. Yet it's never too late to hold to account those that continue to perpetuate an act of dominance through paternalistic practices at the expense of, of optimal patient outcomes. And the community really needs to call this out at every opportunity. Thank you both so much to Dr. Stephen Pipe and to Lawrence Woolard for this really thought-provoking and informative discussion about the future of gene therapy for the treatment of haemophilia. I think some of the key messages there have been, there's still a lot of unknowns. There's a, you know, it won't be a one and done for any patient who decides to go down this route. There'll be a lot of, you know, long-term monitoring to that those patients can then help inform others who want to make decisions. And that feeds in really to something Lawrence talked about quite a lot, which I think is quite important, is this making sure patients are fully informed about all the risks and that we approach patients on their level and provide them information in easy to understand ways so that they can really make a good qualified risk benefit decision around whether or not to pursue gene therapy for the treatment of their, their haemophiliacs disease. And what I think gene therapy is starting to show certainly really good promise of is this potential for people living with haemophilia to be able to have some form of a bleed free life. And it would free up young men, older men to make more decisions to take control of their life without having to worry about having access to treatment and worry about how quickly can they get to the hospital if they have been involved in an accident or a fall. So there's a lot of huge promise there. It's been a great conversation all around. Remember to visit our archives for plenty of great podcasts covering many health-related topics. However, for now, stay safe and stay well. And I hope to have you back again on the EMG Health Podcast very soon. Bye for now. Bye.